Good morning. I'd like to welcome you in the audience and those of you streaming to our presentation this morning by our candidate for the Associate Dean Ag Responsibility here at Extension. And uh, before we begin with my introduction, I just wanted to remind you that if you are interested in submitting any email, any questions, feel free to send them directly to Kathleen Lodl. Kathleen Lodl and uh, she will gather those emails throughout the time for the discussion right after the presentation that's made. Dr. Martin Draper completed his Bachelor of Science degree with a double major in plant pathology and pest management at Iowa State University, his master's at North Dakota State in plant pathology with a minor in bacteriology, and his doctorate also at North Dakota State in plant pathology with a minor in entomology. Dr. Draper currently serves as the USDA NIFA National Program Leader for Plant Pathology. He focuses on field crop diseases, working with land-grant university staff and faculty on multi-state committees and other efforts. In 2010, he was also charged with leading programs in integrated pest management. For several years, Dr. Draper shared leadership of the National Plant Diagnostic Network, focusing on educational efforts. Since 2012, He's had sole responsibility for the program and also leads the pest information platform for extension and education efforts with existing pest systems and programs. He has a background in extension, outreach, teaching, and applied research and employs that experience on several federal programs in the integrated pest management disciplines. Dr. Draper is a native of Iowa and has spent the majority of his professional life in the Midwest working with field crops and seed production. His teaching experiences include positions at both North and South Dakota State Universities, and he is the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including the USDA Secretary's Award of Excellence, Asian Soybean Rust Team. Dr. Draper's international experience includes work in Bolivia, Serbia, Brazil, and Germany. Martin, Marty, <laughs> has also served on departmental and program review boards at several universities, and he is the author and developer of numerous refereed publications, papers, posters, and abstracts, as well as extension publications, along with several invited and other presentations. And Marty, we invite you to present yet another presentation to <laughs> us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. I, I guess that was me. That, that kind of sounded pretty good, so. I, I, hope I, I hope I can live up to it. Uh, or thank you for the opportunity to be here and, uh, and uh, see some friends in the, in the audience out here as, as well as some folks that I hope to get to know a little bit better as, we, as I have some time to spend with you. Um, I guess I'll <clears throat> go ahead and get started here talking a little bit about, about uh, my background, but what I hope to be able to share with you today is a little bit of, of my vision in, in how uh, agriculture and natural resources is important in, in where we're going with extension. It really is a heart and soul of, of extension, uh, historically, traditionally, and, and I think as we move into the new paradigm of the 21st century, while our society, while our culture may look different, uh, we're still dependent on the same, the same issues that, that extension really was designed to address from the very beginning. Uh, as, as Wayne mentioned, I, I am an Iowa native, uh, um, uh, studied at Iowa State for my bachelor's um, in, in both plant pathology and pest management, went to North Dakota for, for graduate school in 82, 
And, and uh, my wife said, yeah, we, we're going to go up here for a couple of years and then we'll go someplace else. Well, we stayed 15 years in, in Fargo. And they were really very good years uh, in the time that I was there. Um, first as a graduate student, then working in, in um, uh, regulatory affairs for seed certification uh, in potatoes. Uh, went back to the university to manage the, uh, the plant diagnostic laboratory, uh, an extension lab that had been closed because of state cutbacks. And, and my charge in going into that lab was to make this thing be something viable, to come up with a business model to make it work. And, and so we, we played on some of my experiences in, in uh, uh, seed certification and added some, some seed health testing components. And really, that was the thing that made it work, that allowed us to float an economic model uh, that could keep that lab open from year to year. Um, so I've been asked before, so why did it take you so long from your master's to your PhD? It was because I was working through that entire time and the university had a, had a program that allowed me to take one class every semester. So I like to joke that, that by the time I reached my, my, uh, uh, my PhD, I had, had fulfilled the tenure track, the 10-year track <laughs> in, order, in order to get there. Um, Following uh, finishing my, my PhD, moved to South Dakota State, was the extension plant pathologist there. Um, had some, some really great experiences working on just about anything that, that could ever be green in, it, in its life cycle. I was the only extension plant pathologist, so it was alf alfalfa to zucchini in my portfolio. Also was part of a, a uh, uh, television show that we had on public television called Garden Line, which was actually uh, based on the model for Backyard Farmer here in Nebraska. And, and uh, we had a producer that used to be at the University of Nebraska, moved to South Dakota, instituted that program. And uh, I believe it, it went off the air a few years ago. I like to say that it, it, it ended because I left, but probably not the reason. Um, had a lot of, uh, of activity in applied research, which I used really as the foundation for my extension program in, in taking in taking uh, training to producers, working with some, some key stakeholders uh, through the commodity groups to try and make sure we had an opportunity. I think we had 35 sites the last year I was in South Dakota, but it gave us a great opportunity to reach stakeholders in various parts of the state. So I got to know the prairie, and you never know what you're gonna encounter on the prairie, and I always felt, always felt good about South Dakota in that it appeared that they had named a town after me, and hopefully that's the one and it wasn't this one. Um, but I think that really does speak to some of the history that you have out here on the Great Plains that, that Draper is actually named after, um, after a railroad executive on the Great Northern. Um, and uh, that other town is really speaking to the, to the history of the people in the Great Plains, that being a, uh, an area in Scotland. So it gets, speaks to some of the Scotch-Irish uh, ancestry in that part of the state. Uh, moved to Washington, D.C. to become the National Program Leader for Plant Pathology in 2006. Um, had a number of, of, uh, of responsibilities, and, and as Wayne mentioned, um, I was handed a, a program that was a, an extension capacity program, a formula program, in about 2008. Uh, about uh, six months after it, it fell in my lap, the 2008 Farm Bill came out and said that capacity program is now going to be competitive, and so you have to figure out how to make that work. It became competitive with a 2009 competition, and then again in 2010, 
Um, I see you've got, we've got your, uh, your PD on that program here in the room here with Bob Wright. And uh, I would say that the program we wound up with is imperfect, but it, we did the best we could to try and address what the legislation said that we had to do and what stakeholders said they wanted us to do. Um, so a number of programs that I've worked on that, that, that Wayne has touched on, I think I'll slide past those uh, just for the sake of time. Um, one thing I do want to highlight here at the bottom of the slide, um, for a period of time I served as the state liaison to both New York and Mississippi. So that was for all of the land grant universities in each of those institutions. Had responsibility for not only being their chief point of contact, but also uh, to review their plan of work, which speaks to all of the ARERA programs, which includes Smith-Lever. Um, and um, also their annual report that speaks to accomplishments uh, against the plan of work. Uh, at this point now, I no, long <clears throat> I no longer have Mississippi, but, but still have responsibilities for New York. A little bit ahead of myself here, uh, also work with, uh, with AFRI uh, food security programs and also the new CARE program. And this is my opportunity to advertise CARE, especially since we've got a CARE recipient sitting in the room here with us. Um, uh, CARE is the Critical Agricultural Research and Extension Program, and it's something that gets lost in the AFRI foundational RFA, but it's a real opportunity for extension and applied research people to get a, a, a small chunk of funding for a finite period of time to do some really good focused work to advance some topic that we know enough about that we think we can help producers, but we've just never had the money to get it done. Um, so. I would encourage anybody that's out there that writes grants to think, and if, if you don't write grants, you ought to be thinking about writing grants to this particular program because it fits so well with the extension mission. Um, I have been involved and continue to be involved with extension. Uh, took on the challenge uh, when I got to DC to try and reestablish the Epsilon Sigma Phi chapter uh, that had been at USDA and had fallen into neglect, let's say. Um, and some of that was because of a lack of support from the administration. Some of it was because of new ethics rules. Uh, and some of it was just because USDA didn't quite know what to do with Epsilon Sigma Phi. Uh, we did get the chapter reestablished. I've been serving as its president for the first two years of its existence, and I'm trying to get someone else to take that over now. Um, but we're running into additional difficulty in trying to, to keep it going because of some of those same issues that I talked about before. None of those issues popped up until after we helped with the, uh, the planning, essentially did the planning for, for NIFA's uh, Smith-Lever Centennial celebration. Um, and then after that we, said, we heard, well, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a conflict here. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. We're working our way through that uh, as each day goes by. Um, one of the other responsibilities that, that I've had recently that I think is really relevant to extension has been um, as co-chair of uh, the Infrastructure and Capacity Task Force. And, and we were essentially given the charge to look at all non-competitive programs that are administered through the National Institute of Food and Agriculture and try and figure out what we're doing and what we could do better. Well, that was a huge scope. So we, we broke it down and said, let's start out by looking at simply our capacity programs. 
those things that are funded through Congress on a formula that support the capacity of the land-grant network to do its job. Um, so we said, what's the funding process? How do we get this done? You know, it's really important because it's half of NIFA's $1.5 billion budget. We've got about, about $700, 000, $700 million that's, that's tied up in these capacity programs. So we've done a number of things through the process. Um, in 2015 and 2016, and this was not our choice, this was something that was imposed legislatively, we phased out the two retirement programs and merged them back into Smith-Lever uh, 3B and C. Uh, we got rid of the application process for one program that was redundant and rolled that into Smith-Lever B and C. And we recognized that we really didn't have any defined process for getting the money from, from DC to the, the, the individual recipients. And so looking at these, these funds flow issues, we realized that part of the problem came down to how we got our money. And the fact that continuing resolutions and late appropriations were coming into play it was really fouling up the, the, the wheels of the machine in being able to move dollars. So consequently, universities were receiving money late. And in some of those years, if you think back, when did the Federal Appropriations Act finally get passed? One year, it was May. And so we were two months from when some states were running up against when the end of their state fiscal year was. We were going to have a really hard time getting you the money in your state fiscal year. You were going to wind up seeing two allocations of money come in one year and none in another year and no way to pay it back. So we knew we had to fix this thing. We had to find a way to make it work. Consequently, we had some serious problems with relationships with our partnership. So we recognized that some of the problems were that we were holding the application process, the, what we used to call Formula Grant Opportunity, or FGO. Now we're calling it an RFA, or Request for Applications, just like we do with competitive programs. We were holding those until we had an appropriation passed. And we were doing it to make it easy on us. Because if we did it earlier, we were going to have to recalculate, and we were going to have to make awards twice. So it was really good for us. It was just really bad for you. Um, consequently, we had some substantial delay in, in, the, in the allocations of funds, and it was complicated by the Office of Management and Budget that provided guidance that said, because of these budgetary problems that we're having, you may not spend funds at a rate faster than you spent them in the previous year. Well, if you, if you add that in with later and later appropriations, you're just getting farther and farther behind. So it took a lot of conversations to get to the point where we had special permission to go ahead and start moving these programs forward. Um, and, and there was an educational process that had to, had to occur. Um, in the process of, of following OMB's policy guidance, we were out of compliance with the law. So I think usually the law takes precedence over policy but somehow we got those two things turned around. So as we started looking at this analytically and trying to, uh, to uh, figure out why we had this problem, we recognized that there was a tradition in the agency that we didn't make awards if we were in the, in the midst of a continuing resolution. Consequently, we were seeing that the average release date, the date that we were asking the universities to, ask to, to apply to us for these funds, was 124 days on average from 2009 to 2014, 124 days after the first day of the new fiscal year. 
So we were into the new calendar year, new fiscal year starting October 1. We were into January before we were even asking you to apply for the funds. If you, if you look at the, how long the process can take, uh, usually it takes about six months to make all, everything, everything finish up to get the awards finalized. You do apply, we get the awards processed and get them finalized. So we were often into the sixth month before we were done getting the money to you. Um, when you look at the law again, uh, we have eight programs that say that the payments are going to made, be made quarterly on or about October in equal quarterly payments. Well, on or about October is probably not June. So we kind of had to fix this problem. And it really came down to the recognition that you're never going to be on time if you always stop late. I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good uh, uh, motto for you to take into life. So when we looked at how these 13 programs uh, were being awarded, this is just 2013 as a snapshot. We were asking for applications out here and we were finishing it up out here just before the end of the fiscal year. The money was about ready to expire um, and, and we were just barely getting it out the door. So we knew that we had to fix this. So we developed a, uh, a, a process that we, we said we would follow and, and for the most part we've had good, good compliance to that and it's moved us in 15 to a process that looked like this. And there's actually a couple of these programs where the applications were out here in the previous fiscal year. But we were to the point where we were, for the most part, getting money awarded out here in, in the second quarter of the year. At least we're into the same fiscal year that your state has you in. The exception to that is the Animal Health and Disease Research Program, which we were forced to delay because we did not have agreement between the House, the Senate, and the President's budget. So we had to sit back and say, we'll have to wait and see where that one comes out with the final appropriation. We can't send money out based on the previous year's appropriation if there's some chance that it may not be appropriated. This year, we're probably looking at having most of the money out to, to states in the first half of January. Uh, talking with, uh, with uh, Dr. Hibbard this morning, not sure that all the programs got out. I'm not sure that Smith Lever BC made it out, but it's really close. So we're getting better. So what's the benefit of this for the customer? That's the thing we have to be keeping in mind in anything that we do, whether it's working with extension and recognizing that the stakeholders are our customers or working in Washington and recognizing that the university is our stakeholder. We're getting the funds to you earlier. We're allowing the spending to be done during the intended period, and we're getting you in a position where you can actually cash flow your operation. Because you can only balance those different sources of funding so much if we get outside of the window that you can spend them. We had to recognize from our side of the operation that we have consequences, that it's gonna take longer from our start time to our finish time, and that that should be acceptable. Uh, that longer waits were going to be just inherent in the design. We're going to get things out and then we're going to allow things to come in. We're not going to award them until we've got money to fund those applications. And then when you look at Lean Six Sigma, which was the model that we tried to use in improving this process, um, we saw this dead time as being what you call business non-value time or non-regrettable work. It's okay to do it when you're doing it for the right reason. It's okay to have that that problem within your, your, your process if it's there because you're trying to provide better service in the end. It creates some double work for us. That's okay because it's part of the customer service 
um, equation that we have. And it, it really is shifting the workload um, and, and a surge in demand management on our, on our staff. So when we, when we started looking at, at, the, at the problem, we recognized there was a lot of variability and it was really continuing resolution. So if you looked at this continuing resolution we had to start this last year, it said we were gonna fund the government, Congress said they were gonna fund the government through December 11th. That's 72 days. So we don't count months, we count days. It's 72 366ths of an annual budget because we're coming into a leap year. And so when you calculate that against for what the, uh, the 2016 budget had available in, the, in that period of time was 19.67% of the budget. So what we did was we said, okay, look at last year's allocation. We can play with 19.67% with of the budget. We can get that out to the states. It's not the 25% they're supposed to get, but we don't have 25% available to us. We can only spend what Congress has given us. So the whole point was that we would improve our customer service to you and you would be able to do your work because we were giving you the money that we promised and that the law said we would give you. So why do we have improvement? Started posting the, the RFA earlier. Uh, this next year, uh, we anticipate that the RFA is gonna be out in June. So we're moving it back even earlier. Uh, it'll be based on the previous year's allocation of funds or appropriation and we'll adjust it with later payments. So it's, it's a very administrative, very bureaucratic thing, but it makes a difference for the people that receive the money. So that's one of the issues that I think plays into um, how well an extension service can serve its clientele. The budget pressures that come not only from the federal portion of the budget, but also the county and the state portions of that budget. We've got underlying issues that are driving how we design our programs when we start looking at the, the $9 billion or the $9 billion person equation and how that's going to play on, uh, on our, our production capability, uh, how water is going to play into our ability to continue to produce and continue to have viability for, for the economic systems out in our rural areas. We have issues with uh, population shifts um, moving from rural to urban, and, and Nebraska has certainly not been immune from that, from that issue that has been a, a, a nationwide concern. And that really feeds into this perception of agriculture and the, and the concern that people do not really understand where their food is coming from. Um, so we've got urbanization, a perception of agriculture, population shifts, and how that's all fitting together. And I don't think we can forget how biosecurity plays into this because people are moving stuff, moving plant products all over the place and as a result, we're seeing the introduction of things that we don't want to see introduced. So federal policy plays into these budget pressures in that what, do the, what does the farm bill tell us that we're going to do? What's the fine print? What is the additional direction that we're getting? Um, all of those things are, are, are influencing what we can do and how we can do it. Uh, we certainly see from Congress a continued effort to say, we wanna see greater competition and greater accountability. And Congress, I think erroneously, has this idea that competition is a surrogate for, for uh, accountability. I think that's a false paradigm, but, but that's their idea, that if, if we compete it, it's gonna be more accountable. 
I think it really comes down to, to uh, how we report out, how we tell our story. And, and evaluation and reporting, I, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, people will, will ask me, so we send in these reports, nobody reads them, right? I read them, I read them. And I'm looking for gems in there. I'm looking for things that I can, I can lift up to our administration that they can, that they can take to the hill. Uh, that they can share upstream in our administration to tell the good stories about the things that our partnership is doing all across the country. So reporting is really, really important, and I'll revisit that point. Another issue that I, I, I usually talk about when I, uh, when I talk to groups at universities is, is our concern about staff replacement and the, the aging professoriate. It's really the aging, it's the aging workforce. Um, when we start looking at the workforce in general, you know, we've got a, a median that's really peaked somewhere in the late 50s, and um, that's problematic. Now, I think it's really impressive what's happened with Nebraska Extension and the number of, of fills that you've had recently. You're quite a bit younger than, than I might have expected that, that uh, you would be, so I think you really are on top of that, and some of the things that I'm hearing that you're able to do with greater flexibility in salaries is going to help a lot in retention. Uh, in my experience with extension, we, we've been able to hire well, we just haven't been able to retain people, and, and I think that salary flexibility is going to help an awful lot. So, um, so it brings us back to the so what question. So we've got a lot of issues, we've got a lot of challenges. Um, how does that really inform me and who I am and how I would, uh, would manage a program? Um, how does that influence my philosophy of, of leadership? Um, it's a question of how it, it would influence strategic vision and the direction of the organization and the influence that I might be able to have there. And I think it also is, is really a question of what's extension all about and what does extension need to be in the coming years. Um, I'm going to share a couple of slides that, in here that I, I've used in the NIFA organization in trying to help my colleagues understand what extension is. We have only a handful of people that really came from an extension background. And when I first went to Washington, one of the things that I told my colleagues was, I'm going to say extension as many times as I can and hope that I can get people to start understanding that extension is really critical to us being able to take our research discoveries and move them into the real world and actually begin to advance agriculture. Having a discovery and leaving it on the shelf doesn't do us any good. We have to find a way to implement and operationalize those, uh, those research uh, findings. So when we start looking at Nebraska, when I start looking at Nebraska, I had to have a better understanding of, of what, the state, what the state is. And I was really very surprised to see some of the, the population distribution and that, that we're, I knew that Omaha was big. I knew that it was a big part of the, of the state. I knew that Lincoln was a significant population center. I didn't realize that half the population lies in those three counties, the, the Douglas, Sarpy, and Lancaster County. Uh, population centers. That's a huge challenge, but it's also an opportunity for us to reach new audiences and address many of those other problems with the perception of agriculture, with the um, issue that people don't understand where their food is coming from, to bring them into the agricultural loop. Looking at, at shifts, uh, this is an interesting, interesting trend that we're seeing where the purple colors reflect loss in population. The darker the green, we're seeing growth in population. Largest growth county is Sarpy County, Bellevue, and, uh, and the Offutt 
area. Um, we're seeing comparable growth, interestingly, in, in Douglas County, Lancaster County, and Johnson County. This one really surprised me. But when you start looking at the percentages that we're talking about here, it's, it's really um, up to 10%. Up to and so when you've got a county of only about 5,000 people, that 10% or up to 10% might be easier to, easier to understand. <clears throat> so fewer than, fewer than 500 people added to that county, but it still is, is better than the loss of, of people that we're seeing in so many surrounding areas. So when I looked at the population of the state, uh, there were some interesting trends that, that were there. Um, First of all, seeing the population growth from, from 2000 to 2010 and the estimated population in, in 2015. So what we're seeing here is, is a growth rate of, of about 4%, a little less than 4%, which is really, which is really a reasonable, reasonable rate. But what really struck me was when I looked at the Census Bureau's, um, the Census Department's projection for the 2030 population, which actually sees the population beginning to shrink. And I think when we start looking at the age of our population, that's where we begin to see uh, that effect coming through. We do have this migration to cities. Uh, we do have this aging. Uh, we're talking about in 2030, over 20% of the population greater than 65 years of age. Um, I think those are issues that we're seeing uh, feed into this reducing population. So what about diversity? Um, what does diversity look like in Nebraska? Um, I always look at Native American populations when I recognize that there are tribal colleges in the state <clears throat> and see that as an opportunity uh, for the 1862 university to, to collaborate and to help out with those, with those clientele groups. So Little Priest and, and Nebraska Indian uh, colleges are good opportunities. When we look at the, the black or African American population of just less than 5%, um, when we look at the uh, Hispanic uh, population of about 10.2%, something like that, that's showing up in the, in the last census. Um, there's opportunities uh, to ask ourselves how are, how are we reaching those audiences, some of which are growing. And then, and then last of all, I want to just touch again on this urban-rural audience issue. Uh, clearly, we are committed to what goes on in our rural areas of our state where the majority of agricultural production occurs. But if we ignore the urban audience, we just contribute to that disconnect about where our food comes from. And so we have to look at, at the opportunities that we have to use Extension as the marketing wing for the university and for our agricultural programs. Um, to try and get out there and tell our story and find connections in those, in those areas with new audiences. We do continue to see Nebraska show the same kind of trend that we have across the country uh, with increasing uh, farm size and decreasing farm numbers. Uh, generally, what we're seeing is this small uptick of uh, farm numbers is, is directly related to small farms. Um, farms where, where that is not the primary source of income. And, and how we address that, that growing part of the population that's becoming very influential politically in, in the culture that we live in today, I think is a really important thing for us to be soul searching about. 
So, we, <clears throat> so when we look at the agricultural base of, uh, of Nebraska, um, certainly it's a very diverse cropping group. Um, livestock is well represented, but, uh, but clearly beef is king. Um, I, I kind of I, I look down here and say, you know, eggs, eggs ought to be more important. I have an uncle that worked in Schuyler in an egg operation for, for most of his career, so it seems like, uh, seems like I should move that up the, up the list a little bit more. But uh, you know, most of these crops on this side of the list here, I actually have worked with. Um, worked with uh, the, the a little bit had, had uh, interaction with the potato seed certification group out in the panhandle. I've worked with sugar beet producers uh, nationwide. Worked with uh, with dry bean cooperatives all around the country. So uh, uh, really, the the cropping system fits fits into the background that I have. But when we start looking at how those cropping systems play together with our natural resources, I think then we can really start recognizing some additional challenges that we have in how we approach our, our programs. Um, certainly water is a big deal, uh, surface water and then managing the, the aquifer. I've uh, been really encouraged hearing some of the, of the programs that are already going on in Nebraska with, with managing the aquifer. You know, the days are gone of just being able to pour as much water on the crop as we can and, and plan on getting the biggest yields that we can possibly have. We not only have to manage the crop, we have to manage the resource that allows us to grow that crop. Uh, soil stabilization is always an issue and that plays into, into our, our residue management. It also uh, speaks to how we're managing our, our uh, nutrient management programs uh, associated with our livestock. Um, livestock production systems. And then of course one of the biggest issues that we have uh, out there right now is pollination services and how that fits into the entire ecosystem services model. Um, the, pollinator, uh, the pollinator problems right now have been well documented in the press. I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in the public and it's really an opportunity uh, for us as a, as a university to tell that story uh, a little more, um, in a little more balanced method, a little more balanced form. So uh, I mentioned about the push for greater accountability because, because we've got all kinds of people out there that are watching us. Um, I've done, I've done uh, uh, testimony for two different government accountability uh, office audits in this last year. Um, they're watching every dollar, they're watching every dollar. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget is constantly questioning why you want to add, add money to any particular line in the budget. And there are any number of citizen watch, watchdog groups that are out there that, that paint the picture that they want to paint. Um, and we have the opportunity to balance that story. But we can only do that if we have the accomplishments reported to people that can share them. How we tell our story is really critical because everybody's watching. People are watching and it's really all about the money. It's the show me the money thing. And so it's really incumbent on us to tell the story of the good things that we're doing. We do that by following planning models. Um, when the logic model was first introduced to me and I see a couple of smirks out there, um, I hated it. I've grown very comfortable with it. And I think it does make you think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, how are you going to get to that ultimate outcome, that, that long-term outcome? And I've had an awful lot of people that have come to me and said, condition. What do you mean, condition? I don't know what that is. And so I've, I've tried to tell them that another way to think about that is, 
is culture. Have you changed the culture? Have you changed the condition that that, that problem has been couched in in the first place? And at the point that there's been a change there, then your situation that drove the entire project has changed. So this is not a static model. This is a dynamic model and it has to be revisited constantly to make sure that you're still addressing the problems that are out there. Um, there was a model that was put together a few years ago by, by, uh, by Thousand and Villa, and, and it talked about how do you manage complex change. And there's everything that we do in agricultural and natural resources that is complex. Everything is complex. So they said you have to have a certain number of things in place in order to get change. You have to have a vision. You have to have the skills to accomplish what you're trying to do. You have to have appropriate incentives. You have to have the resources to be successful, and you have to have an action plan. If all those things come together, you should be able to accomplish change. But when you start pulling things out, if you don't have vision, you wind up with nothing but confusion. If you don't have skills, you just wind up with anxiety. If you don't have incentives, you get resistance. If you don't have resources, you get frustration. And if you don't have an action plan, you're just on the treadmill. And by the treadmill, they're talking about you're just out there doing the same thing that you've always been doing, and you don't really know where you're trying to get to. You're going nowhere. So it's really important to be able to recognize what all those pieces are and try and have them as a part of your, of your, um, of your plan. So when we start thinking about, about excellence, about our clientele, the people that we're trying to educate, and I'm going to call them our students, you can look at some, some pedago pedagogical models or, and, and translate them into, into andragogy, teaching of adults. And there's a model that was proposed by Hardin a number of, of years ago that talked about outcome-based education. And, and he said basically that you've got introduction, these are the things that have to happen in order to get to the point where you've got adoption. You've got introduction, practice, and at the point that their practice has been sufficient, you'll have mastery of the skill. And so when we think about trying to get someone to change a practice that they've established for years and years and years, your athletic coach might say they've got muscle memory on this. It takes a lot of practice and it takes real persistence in trying to tell this story to move people forward to the point where they have mastery of this new skill, this new practice in, in, managing, in managing their operation. So how do, how, we have to ask ourselves how these models that I've talked about fit into our extension curriculum and what we want our outcomes to be and if we're actually capable of being able to measure those things. So when I look at, at change theory, there's a couple, of, a couple of things that I look to that have been very useful to me. And I mentioned already about the project that we looked at with trying to, trying to streamline our funding from NIFA that we used a Lean Six Sigma approach. And that follows an analytical process called the MAIC, which is just the, the first letter of each of the steps. You define the problem, you measure what's actually going on, you're collecting data, analyze those data, propose improvements, and then at the point that you've implemented those improvements, you continue to, continue to monitor the system in a control phase where you may need to continue to tweak that system. And I think this really fits very well with what we're talking about with the logic model. Hopefully, we have considered some of that definition and that measurement as we're, as we're coming up with our situation 
And as we are looking at improvements, we're looking at the resources, we're looking at the inputs that we need to have, and considering what kinds of outputs we're going to have to have in order to have successful improvement that we can look at continuing to tweak. John Cotter from the, uh, the Kennedy School of, of Business at, at Harvard also has a, a, a plan that he calls leading change. Uh, it's an eight-point model that I think is really an important way to approach things. And the most important step is the first one, and that is developing a sense of urgency. And when I have seen plans for change that fail, invariably it's that sense of urgency that was not followed through on. Developing a guiding coalition is, is number two. We see that with the work that we do in extension with stakeholders. Sharing the vision, working that vision, and essentially developing that vision in many, part, in many points with, the, uh, with our guiding coalition. Bringing in volunteers, something extension does exceptionally well. Removing barriers, which is one place where administration has a role. Looking for short-term wins, we used to refer to this as our low-hanging fruit. We're going to make sure we get our low-hanging fruit. One of the real problem areas is sustaining acceleration. How do you keep moving forward? How do you keep implementing that? And that's kind of what we're talking about over here with control. We're continuing to monitor and we're tweaking the system to make sure that we can sustain our acceleration as we're instituting change. So we've got these, these issues with budgets and I can talk most uh, and from a most educated uh, standpoint about federal budgets, you know, so our recent budget has been a bunch of continuing resolutions and they have not been timely appropriations at all. Uh, it fouls up our ability to do our, our work. Uh, but those are just one of the realities that we're dealing with and we can't control that particularly well. Some of the things that we can control though are looking at the prospects of new funding and trying to make sure that we have our staff working toward finding external funding to, uh, to supplement uh, what we're doing. We have some, uh, uh, some concerns in Washington that there's a lot of pressure to reduce spending and reduce staffing. Um, that's really not, not helping. Uh, when we start looking at the, the levels of funding over the last several years, in real dollars, we are seeing a decline in, in the federal contribution to what we're trying to do in the states. Now we're also seeing that the federal, um, the federal side of this is imparting pressure on our competitive programs. So for example, um, we have seen in the last Farm Bill additional criteria written into AFRI um, for partnerships, um, for um, centers of excellence that have created some real challenges for um, moving the programs forward, but also for folks out in the countryside to try and figure out how in the heck you can apply using those criteria. Um, we'll see the partnerships coming out in this next, this next RFA. Uh, this last, uh, this last uh, um, uh, Specialty Crops Research Initiative uh, offering had a separate breakout of funds for a citrus initiative, and I think this is a kind of a dangerous precedent that we're seeing in Congress. So we no longer have earmarks, so the, the decision has been made that we're going to take the competitive programs that are out there and we're going to carve out the things that we would have had earmarks in, which I think is really going to do some damage to some of the competitive programs. So, um, if we're looking at being successful, moving things forward, imparting change, um, I think it's really, really necessary to have relationship. And when I look at what's, what really works about extension, 
it's relationship. Um, and relationships with commodities, relationships with community and business partnerships. Everybody's responsible for the progress that we accomplish, and it really shouldn't matter who's getting the credit. Um, I've always been impressed by this Martin Luther King uh, quote, and I think it's particularly appropriate to use this as we're coming up on the celebration of Martin Luther King uh, Day, the holiday. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? I think that's what extension does. I think that's what extension does. We move people forward. We make a better life for them, a better future. Uh, this is something that came out of ECOP, defining what extension is. Cooperative extension provides education you can trust to help people, businesses, and communities solve problems, develop skills, and build a better life. It's translation of research, engagement of stakeholders, and transformation of their lives. Extension makes people's lives better. That's the story I try to tell at NIFA every time I talk about extension. This is an old, an old graphic that we've seen around for quite some time. I think it was originally introduced in the 90s and then was, uh, I guess it was 2004 it was first introduced, uh, modified in 2008, but talking about how Extension's model is out there to, to, to bring process and content together to develop programs that lead to transformational education. So we need to do that with what we're doing with Extension programs. So when we look at these challenges, we're dealing with increasingly diverse audiences. Our audience is changing. Urban programming and delivery with a rural funding model is gonna be really important as we try and figure out how we're reaching these new audiences. Food security is a concern. We've got, uh, we've got production and trade issues. Uh, we've got the food deserts issue. Sometimes we refer to these as, as food accessibility and food availability. We've got food choices and diets. The other thing I would add to this is our food waste issue, our food loss and food waste issues. So we're looking at that nine billion people. These are gonna be incredibly important questions for us to address in extension. And then internationalizing the extension mission. So I talk a little bit about production and trade here. I talk about internationaling and that internationalizing extension. And as we internationalize uh, agriculture, that really doesn't come without risk. And you know, probably one of those risks that we're looking at right now is is the new, <clears throat> the new wheat stem rust um, genotype that's in Africa, uh, UG99, and its potential of being introduced to the United States. So Lincoln had a great approach to leadership. I'm not gonna dwell on this. This, was, uh, this came out of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, Team of Rivals. Listening to different points of view, making sure you listen, listen, listen. And I think that's the most important thing when you're working with, with stakeholders, when you're working with commodities. So a um, little bit more about uh, my leadership profile. Who am I? Uh, I learned a lot about myself in, in LEAD 21. Um, found out that uh, my, my Myers-Briggs profile is that uh, I am an ISFP, a very unusual uh, profile. I am introverted. I am a sensing, feeling, perceiving personality. Um, I'm actually fairly introverted, but these things are really kind of close to neutral. So, so they're not real strong indicators of who I am. But when they analyze that particular profile, they come up with uh, someone who is described as being tolerant, realistic, harmonious, and adaptable. So I like to really talk about me being adaptable. Uh, you know, I can work with you, I can work with you. So there were several times when we were talking about the, uh, the uh, uh, schedule that we have over the next couple of days, and 
We don't know exactly how that's going to go. And I, I just kept saying, well, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll roll with it. Um, and I think that's really important as you're trying to work with people and develop relationships. Uh, but it, further, it says that I am introverted feeling with extroverted senses, sensing. So I have some characteristics of an extrovert as needed. I just need to rest at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, when they look at, at the distribution of this particular characteristic, they see that it's about 9% of the population, but only about 1.2% of leaders. So it's not very common in leaders. It's another uh, um, analysis program that's out there they're called Strength Finders. And uh, we used this within the agency um, a couple of years ago. And I thought it was interesting seeing how this played out, that uh, it showed adaptability as my primary characteristic. And when I go back and look at, at my Myers-Briggs here again, I'm adaptable. So um, also committed to responsibility, and I tend to be a bit of a high achiever. So. Um, you got to work hard. Now it's funny when I when I uh, went to uh, to NIFA originally, um, they commented to me, "It's really great to be able to hire somebody out of the Midwest that that likes to work and get the job done." So, hopefully, that's a descriptor of me. So when we start looking at the land grant mission and how that plays into what we're going to accomplish, uh, we've got that three-legged stool that we talk about so much and the importance of extension translating research and, and the ongoing training for people to have, help them improve their lives really fits together with education's goal of developing a future workforce. Uh, we're really working in that same realm as we start looking at, at youth education and that's gonna, going to uh, connect with our agriculture and natural resources programs as well. So we've got some overarching themes that I've tried to talk about, uh, the novel pedagogy that we're dealing with and the andragogy that we're dealing with in adult audiences, um, our grantsmanship and the need for expanding our funding model, uh, how important evaluation is, and, and how reporting is really critical as we do our evaluation of our programs. Um, a quote that I like to look at, and this thing hangs in my office, uh, it's from Vance Havner, who was an evangelist back in the 30s and 40s, and he said, uh, uh, after planning comes the progress. It's not enough to stare up the steps. You have to step up the stairs. So you have to get your hands dirty. You have to get out there and do things. We can't just plan. We have to implement. And, and that's what extension is about, and hopefully we can, we can look at ways that that can happen in agricultural and natural resources. So I'd be happy to entertain any questions that you might have. Um. Marty, thank you very much. And remember, in the audience, you can use this microphone if you have any questions, and then Kathleen will also share questions coming from the Thanks, um, I enjoyed the presentation. One of the things you talked about was the need for reporting and accountability. and. Um, I know those of us who aren't in administrative roles, sometimes we struggle when we see the report requests come across email. And, and I used to hate them too. And I think, <laughs> I think it's good to understand what those, what the value is in those, but I, I also think maybe there's a better way to do our reporting than we currently are, and I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. If, um, yeah. Well, I can assure you there's a better way to do it. We just can't do the better way. Um, so. Many of you remember the old Chris system, and it was a little more intuitive when you looked at it. 
as we've been pushed into this new report system, it's really based on fitting a government-wide standard, um, the RPPPR standard. It's the reporting and progress and you know, some format that we have to follow. So we get a we got a, a, a menu of things that we were allowed to ask, and we can only ask for so many characters under each, under each category. Um, one of the things that we lost was a category called impact, and now we ask you to report that under accomplishments. It's not intuitive. It's not an intuitive way to ask that question. Um, I found out more recently that we could have still asked for impact, but somebody made the decision not to do that. So that was, that was a strategic error. But you know, we're trying to work and develop new uh, training materials to help people understand. There is a new manual that we've got out there that we just rewrote in how to do a report, um, progress or final report. And I hope that, that if you take a look at that, that can be helpful. We also encourage people as you're doing reports, if you have questions, call the national program leader that's associated with the program that you're reporting on. And, and I, I talk with people every couple weeks that are trying to figure out how in the heck they're gonna make this fit. So we wanna work with you, we wanna help you. Um, but I agree, it's, it's not the best way to do it, but it's what we have to do. Again, this is something that Congress decided would be good. Any other questions? And also for those viewing, if by email, you send an email to Kathleen Lodel, she'll be able to pick up that email and uh, formulate it to us here so that we can have a response. I can fill a little bit while we're waiting for the next question and expand a little bit. I can expand a little bit on, on, on Amy's question. Let me just add. Okay. So let me add one more thing about, about reporting. So sometimes your accomplishments get lost, and we don't want to lose them. Uh, you know, they're, they're coming up through the uh, annual report of accomplishments for our ARERA programs like Smith-Lieber 3B and C. They're coming up through, your, uh, through report for your competitive programs. Um, there's another thing that we've implemented recently called sharing your science that allows you as a scientist to say, hey, I just, I just found this really neat thing, and we're asking you to tell us about it. Um, and then we will use that um, as quickly as we can. So basically, we're not weeding, uh, weeding through all of these reports trying to find something. And it's not uncommon for me to get a call. Um, so let, example here, last Wednesday, I was getting ready to leave town to go to Philadelphia for a meeting that, that had to leave at noon. At 10 o'clock, I got a note saying, I need this information by close of business. Tell me about all the programs that have effective pollinator protection projects. Oh, great. So I'm weeding through these, these project reports that I know have something, but I don't know what they've reported. Um, so we've got these, these bins where we try to track things that are are known to be hot button issues. But the pollinator pot is really pretty empty right now. So if we had people reporting through sharing your science, we'd actually be able to drop that into that pot and go to it very quickly and not have to find it. So, so it's kind of your nuggets. Uh, years ago, we asked for bullets. That was before I got to Washington, but they used to ask for your, your bullet points. And, and it's the same kind of thing that we're trying to accomplish there. 
So you've got another question. Um, and are they hearing me now on, on there? Okay. Um, so the other thing you mentioned that I really picked up on was um, the need to recruit people into extension positions. And um, we have a, a great program that, that Wayne started here with the um, Extension Graduate Research Fellowships, which is helping to train um, graduate students to go into extension careers. And I'm just kind of wanting to get your feedback on other um, other opportunities for recruiting um, graduate students, particularly into doctoral programs where they do come out understanding what extension is and why it matters? Well, I think that's challenging when we look at our traditional approach to what we have, what we train graduate students to do. I think there's one opportunity that, that um, NIFA has implemented recently through what used to be called a fellowships program. Uh, an AFRI fellowships program, now they call it the ELI program, uh, educational learning initiatives, I think it is. And one of the areas that you can put in for is um, an extension emphasis in those fellowships. So uh, I think that's something that would be worth looking at more closely. Uh, I've been impressed from my, my conversations with Dr. Hibbard on, on how effective you have been at recruiting. And I think some of the, the restructuring of, of, of how you're treating those positions has been really critical in being able to be successful um, recruiting people with, with higher degrees to, do, uh, to work in positions that we haven't traditionally thought of as, as homes for, for where they might wind up. Time for another question. Paul Reed, agronomy and horticulture. Uh, two things you pointed out go hand in hand, I think, and I wonder if you'd expand on them. That is the increasing number of smaller farms, and that fits with the urban or rural urban interface. Uh, could you expand upon how or we in extension can do a better job of dealing with that uh, demographic change? Urban, I like that. Can I steal that and use that again on, call it my own? <laughs> um, I, I think that is a real challenge for us because those producers are responding to this, this call in our culture for local foods, but they're really not aligned with any classic commodity group that we've traditionally worked with, with uh, very closely. So uh, it is a big challenge for Extension to try and figure out ways to find our way into um, working with that group. Um, I had, had kind of a similar experience um, when I was in South Dakota trying to work with melon growers. There was no melon, no melon cooperative, no melon board, um, but it really came down to going and sitting down with them one-on-one -on -one and trying to see what can we do to help you out. And these things are really time-consuming, but, but that's kind of where relationships start. Um, and building those relationships is really difficult when you've got no history. So you have to figure out a way to find something that, that becomes a surrogate for that history, and it really is personal contact. Um, you can look a lot, I think, to how, how county located staff can help with that, but I think in some cases it's going to wind up being uh, campus-based faculty that have to play a role in, in getting out there. Sometimes it's going to a farm stand, having a presence at a farm stand by extension, and maybe that's an opportunity for the diagnostic lab. 
Um, but I think there's, there are ways that we can reach that group that we have traditionally not had a relationship with. But I agree, it is a challenge. Larry Van Tassel, Department of Agriculture and Economics. Uh, I was a meeting the other day and uh, one of the individuals there had mentioned that, that he uh, had got to know a lot of the specialists and he can just go to them and bypass the educators since educators just need to go ask the specialists anyway and kind of, of uh, you know, hinted that maybe others should try to do that also, that get to know the, the specialists on campus and stuff so they can go directly to them. How do, we, how do we overcome that? How do we make the educators continue to be relevant? Well, I think that is a, that is a really important question. And I think that uh, from what I'm hearing about some of the hires that you've been able to make for, for county staff that have higher degrees, that may help change that paradigm. But I think there was a, a traditional view of extension that those, those county-based uh, staff are generalists and they really are not gonna be able to answer my specific question. Um, I think it comes back to relationship again. And, and it depends a lot on who the staff are and how they have their relationships with campus staff, uh, but also how we can develop uh, how they work with their local clientele. Uh, I think that's one of those things we have to look at on a case-by-case -case basis and try and figure out where specifically are those problems. I think Ag Econ is probably a traditional area where we don't have a lot of expertise out in the field. Uh, would you think that, say that's also the case here? So, I mean, uh, as we look at how we support our, our county staff, how we build their, their core competencies, and, and what we have as expectation for, for campus-based staff on how the county is going to be working, uh, I think gets to the heart of, of how we address the problem. Training, training, training. We want to make sure our staff can do what we want them to do. Well, Marty, we want to thank you again for your presentation and your Q&A time. Let's express our appreciation to you.